Well, this morning we're finally getting back to our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, we've had several weeks off from that study, and uh, uh, for good reason. We looked at some other texts from Luke chapter 15, and, and then last week we looked at uh, Genesis 1 again when we had our devotion time in our fifth Sunday fellowship. But uh, we're getting back into the swing of things with uh, fall and or I assume fall is going to get here at some point at least. Uh, and we're, we're going to get back into Genesis today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 14. But just to bring you up to speed and remind you of where we've been, we've, we've looked at uh, over the course of the last 10 months the, the story of the beginning and seeing how God is at work in the world, uh, in creation, even in the fall, in redemption, uh, in his judgment of the world in the flood. And then now, as the story of the world has kind of come into to a very minute, microscopic focus for the book of Genesis, now the story has drilled down from uh, Adam and Eve to the descendants of Adam to the people after the flood to the nations. Now it is drilled back down all the way to this one man named Abram and his wife Sarah. And we know, as we've already seen, that Abram and his wife Sarah are, are barren. They haven't been able to have any children and they're old. And so uh, God's work in these two people is a work of miracle that God is, has promised Abram starting in Genesis chapter 12, that he is going to bless Abram and that he's going to make his name great and that he's going to bless those who bless him and he's going to curse those who curse him and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through this one uh, infertile old man. And there's no indication from Genesis chapter 12 as to how God is going to do that. But God promises, and we know through the rest of Scripture, that Abraham is considered to be the man of faith. Romans, Paul calls him the man of faith because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so he stands as this, this uh, bastion of faith, this example, this great example of faith and, and the father of faith, as we sing in Vacation Bible School, or maybe you sang it when you were in Vacation Bible School, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. The reason we sing that is because by faith, we are now identified as children of Abraham. But, if you know the story, Abraham... Though he's the man of faith, he's not all that faithful, right? You kind of know how this story is going to go. Uh, but we see, like, right after the promise in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham becomes concerned because there's a famine in the land of Canaan, this promised land that God says he's going to give him. And so he goes down to Egypt. And when he goes down to Egypt, it's a, a denial of that very faith that he says he has. And not only that, but he lies to the Pharaoh. And as a result, he gets into all kind of mess because of that. But even still, God is faithful to the promise that he made to Abram. 
Because God blesses those who bless Abram and he curses those who curse him. And so even though the Pharaoh was unwitting in his curse of Abram by taking Sarai, his wife, into his harem, God still curses him uh, as a result. And the man who walks with Abram, Lot, his nephew, is blessed even though he's not part of the blessing that God has given him. And so Lot increases in wealth as Abram increases in wealth. And so you remember last time we studied in Genesis chapter 13, there was this divide that happened. Lot, because of the the wealth and the blessings of God on Abram, Lot gains all this wealth and these cattle and and sheep and goats and, and slaves and all of this, and so does Abram. And they get to the point where the land won't support both of them. So you remember Abram says, we don't need to fight. Let's let's sit down and we can work this out. If you go to the north, I'll go to the south. If you go to the east, I'll go to the west. But you get first dibs on what you want. And so Lot looks at the Jordan River Valley and he notices that it's wealthy, that it's lush. And not just that, but he notices that there are people there, that there are cities there. And so Lot exemplifies the man who lives his life by his gut, who lives by sight, not by faith. Whereas Abraham exemplifies the man of faith, the man who trusts that whatever happens, God will be with him and God will fulfill his promise. So that's where we've been. And up until this point, what we've seen is that God has been with Abram and God has been faithful to Abram. And yet Lot is faithful to his own desires and his own gut. He doesn't pray for wisdom from the Lord. He doesn't seek God's word and seek to uh, understand God's commands. He just does what is the most advantageous to him. So at the end of chapter 13, we find out that Lot is dwelling near Sodom. And Sodom, as you already know, is a very wicked city. But now in chapter 14, at the beginning of chapter 14, Lot isn't just dwelling near Sodom. But notice verse 12. It says in verse 12, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. So Sodom, uh, so Lot has moved from dwelling near Sodom, this wicked city, to now he is dwelling in Sodom. So here is how this becomes a problem for Lot, and eventually a problem for Abram as well. Lot is dwelling in Sodom, and every spring, the tradition of these early times was that the kings of the cities would go out to battle. Now, in these days, you had city-states. Every major city had a king and a military of its own. But they all struggled over the surrounding territories. And so you could imagine if, uh, you know, Pineapple and Awen were two cities, city-states, 
We wouldn't have a very big military, but we would, we would, we, we'd have some territory, right? And that little, what, four miles between us would be a point of contention, right? If we had this, this city surrounded by walls and Awen had their city surrounded by walls and we needed farming land to support our, our city, every spring we might get into a little bit of a tussle, a, a, a tussle over who got to plant the fields between here and there. And that would erupt into war and ultimately to, uh, to uh, a conflict. And so every year these kings would go out and they would fight over the land that would sustain their cities. Also, some cities were pledged to other cities. You know, a big city might have a few little cities that were, would send fealty to them. They would send taxes and people to fight these battles and so they would support these larger cities and we find out at the beginning of Genesis chapter uh, 14 that Sodom and Gomorrah were like that they were pledged to the king of Elam and like anybody who has to pay taxes you only have to do that once before you decide you don't like it very much right and so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah had decided that they didn't like paying fealty anymore to the king of Elam. And so they decided to band together with these other cities that had to pay fealty and they would fight the king of Elam. And so these armies met in the valley of the Dead Sea and apparently the, the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah got quite literally their tails kicked. And they got beat so bad, the battle was so decisive that the king of Elam and his armies marched on to Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities, and they looted and they raped and they pillaged and they took away as many citizens as they could to be their slaves. And guess who is caught up in all of that? None other than the man of sight himself, the man of his gut, Lot. The man who moved away from the promises of God into a city. Now fortunately for Lot, one man escapes. And he runs to this man of faith, Abram, and he tells him about the loss and the fact that Lot has been captured. So Abram forms a raiding party of 318 men. And they attack this victorious army, and by God's grace, they defeat them. And this is, the, this is the background for what I want us to consider today. What I, want you, what I want to look at is the aftermath of this victory that Abram has. And as we study this passage today, there's one question that I want you to ask and hopefully answer by the end of the sermon. Are you seeking the approval of men? Or are you seeking the approval of God? And so in looking at this text, I want us to see two things today. Or I want to look at it in two parts. First of all, I want to look at the priest that is, the priest that is accepted. And secondly, the playboy that is rejected. The priest that is accepted and the playboy that is rejected. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 14. Verse 17 through 24. I'll read that and then let's pray and we'll get into the sermon. After his return from the deceit, uh, defeat of Chedor Laomar the, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out 
to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskol and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this story today of your deliverance of your man of faith and the, the victory that you gave him over uh, an innumerable odd, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand our right standing before you and that it is not based on uh, the acceptance of men. It is not based on the approval of men. It is based on your own approval. And Father, I pray that we would see in the example of these two kings uh, the true king that we should serve and the true priest that stands before you now uh, interceding on our behalf. Father, bless me as I preach. Give me the words to say that would uh, encourage and build up and take away those words that would distract or lead astray. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So like I said, the first thing that I want you to see from this text is that the priest of God is accepted by Abram. As Abram is returning to the promised land, I'm sure that the word of this great victory has spread like wildfire. And apparently it spread all the way down to Jerusalem. And we find out that there are these two kings that come out to meet Abram as he's returning. The first king that I want us to see is this king of Salem, Melchizedek. Now, the only things that we know about Melchizedek are found right here in Genesis chapter 14, historically speaking. There is no mention of Melchizedek in the historical record other than right here in Genesis 14. And there's no more mention of him in the narrative of the scripture uh, rather than right here in uh, Genesis 14. Now, he is mentioned in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews 5 and then in Hebrews 7, which we'll consider a little later. But there's no mention of him elsewhere in scripture as far as who he is or where he came from. But what we learn about him right here and what the New Testament tells us is rather significant. So we need to pay attention to this king and who is also a priest. From this passage, we learn three very important things about Melchizedek. The first thing that we learn is that he is the king of Salem. Now, most scholars believe that this Salem is actually Jerusalem, which David would later conquer and make 
the, the uh, capital of the unified Israel. And if so, this, uh, uh, then word has traveled to Jerusalem and this king of Salem has been so impressed with, with what he's heard about this faithful man of God that he wants to come out and meet him. This man is not part of the battle. He's not part of the aftermath. He just wants to come out and to bless this man of faith. And the second thing that we learn about Melchizedek is that he was the priest of God Most High. Now this is interesting for two reasons that I want you to notice. First of all, it was not a common practice for the king of a city to also be the priest. These were two different offices, a king and a priest, and they were often and almost always held by two different men. But for Melchizedek, he is both a king and a priest. And not just that, but the, the text itself plays a little wordplay on who he is. Because the text says two different things just by giving his title. It says he's the king of Salem and the priest of Salem. Now the interesting thing about that is that the word Salem can mean two different things. It can mean righteousness or it can mean peace. You might have heard a Jewish person say the word shalom. That's, that's the word Salem there. And Salem can also mean, or Jerusalem can also mean, righteousness. And so when he says that he's the king of Salem, he is both the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Now the writer of the Hebrews plays hugely off of this idea, this play on words. Because there's another king that would come who would be a priest and who would also be a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Anybody want to guess? It's the right Sunday school answer for everything. Jesus, right? And so this man is a foreshadowing, a type of a king that would come who would be the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And the second reason that this is significant is because the, the priest of this area, the area surrounding Jerusalem, the priests that we know about were not God-fearing priests. They were pagan priests. There were no other, other than Abram that we know of, there were no other followers of God Most High except for this one priest that would come out to meet him. You see, this priest didn't come from anywhere. He didn't come from some lineage. He didn't get his authority from some uh, uh, genetic lineage that he was passed down to him. He wasn't a part of a family of priests like Aaron and his descendants. He was a priest simply by God's bestowing it on him. Simply by God recognizing him to be a priest. And that's significant also because Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron. He was not a Levite. But yet God says that he is a priest. And he is a priest because God says it, not because he has some genetic lineage that makes him so. So 
Abram recognizes this. And he recognizes this to the point that Melchizedek is respected by Abram. Abram is the man of faith, the man of promise. And yet this priest of the Most High God comes and Abram does what? He gives a tenth of all of the conquered loot that he has to this priest of the Most High God. Abram doesn't know this man. And he certainly doesn't owe him anything. So why does he give him a tenth of his possession? It's because Melchizedek represented the only king that Abram served. Abram trusted in God Most High to fulfill his promises to him. And Melchizedek represented God. So Abram honored Melchizedek. The second thing we see is that the playboy is rejected by Abram. We find out in verse 21 that Abram is also met by the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom also extends a kind of a blessing of sort in saying that Abram can keep all of the treasure that he has uh, won from this battle. The possessions that Abram carried with him now are really the possessions of the people of Sodom. So the king of Sodom, as a reward for Abram's victory, says that he can keep those possessions, just leave the people and let them come back to his city. Now this sounds like a great deal, but without hesitation, Abram rejects the offer. Notice the reason that Abram gives for rejecting it in verse 22. Abram made a promise, a promise to the Lord that he would not take anything because he didn't want the king of Sodom to come back later and say, you know that that rich guy, Abram over there? Yeah, I set him up. He's 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 wealthy and he's well off because of the gifts that I gave him. He wanted no connection between this unrighteous pagan king and his success. He wanted it all to be given to the Lord. He wanted the honor and the glory for his success to be God's glory and God's honor. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the attitude that we should have. Brothers and sisters, are you seeking the approval of man rather than the approval of God? Might you have jumped at the opportunity that the king of Sodom had given you? Might you have been like Lot, a man or a woman of sight, rather than a man or a woman of faith? And seeing that great treasure, might you have jumped at the chance to possess it? To do so would mean that you would miss out on the approval of God. And the approval of God is what matters in the end. Remember what Jesus said when he said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And lose his soul? Are you jumping over backwards to make the world like you? Are you going out of your way to gain the approval of men so that you can fit in or move up or earn just a little bit more? In the end, that stuff will all burn up in the fire of judgment. And all you will have, all you will have gained from the approval of men is judgment in hell. But the Bible tells us 
that there was another man who was like Melchizedek in, a, in many ways. He is not just the king of Jerusalem. He is the king of kings. He is not just a priest of God, but he is the priest who stands before the Father, now pleading for us. Jesus Christ was the perfect king and the perfect priest. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus is the better priest than Melchizedek. Now, why is that? It's because Jesus paid for our sin with his own blood. Like I read from Hebrews 9 in our assurance of pardon, he didn't just slaughter an animal, which really wouldn't do anything for anybody because animals' blood really couldn't cover sin. But he took the beating, the nails, the lashings, the mocking that you deserved. He took your place, substituted himself for you. And his approval is the only thing that matters. The approval of men doesn't matter in the end. But the approval of God does. And the only way to gain the approval of God is to trust in the sacrifice that Jesus has given for you. And so when we work for the Lord, we are not working because we want the approval of men. We are not working because we want people to say we did a good job. We are working because like Abram, we want to give back to the Lord that has blessed us. And so as Abram recognized that this priest and this king has come before him and he deserves honor and glory because of who he is, so too we give to the Lord because we want to honor and glorify him. Because he has made us perfect through his blood, we want to show our obedience and our love for him. And so as we go from this place, may we go with that in mind, knowing that we have a great high priest who has forgiven us of all of our sins, and therefore we should give him back what he, uh, uh, just a portion of what he has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of uh, Abram, who was faithful and who uh, showed that faith by honoring the right king, by rejecting the the ways of this world and the approval of men in, in the king of Sodom, but by showing right honor and right glory to the true king, the priest king that came and suppered with him. Father, I pray that we too would honor you rightly in our deeds and in our words, that we would show others who you are by our actions and by what we say. And Father, may we give back uh, as a, a gift to you, our, our bodies and our lives as the right sacrifice that you demand. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.